Since the global financial crisis, major central banks like the Federal Reserve in the United States and the European Central Bank in Europe have taken unprecedented steps to support the record-long economic expansion. Short-term interest rates are negative in Europe and Japan, and interest rates are below 2% in all major economies. So unconventional policy has become conventional, and yet that's still not enough. When the next downturn happens, most central banks will not have the same ammunition, specifically lowering short-term and long-term interest rates to support a recovery that they had in the last downturn. On this episode of The Bid, Jean Bovin, head of the BlackRock Investment Institute, talks about the challenges for central banks in dealing with the next downturn. John wrote about this exact topic in a recent paper published by the BlackRock Investment Institute. It stirred a lot of debate among academics and policymakers. So today, we'll talk about why central banks are reaching those limits and what's next for them and governments alike. I'm your host, Mary Catherine Later. We hope you enjoy. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Great to be here. We're talking today about central banks and their role in the next economic downturn. But you and the BlackRock Investment Institute have actually said that you don't anticipate an economic downturn this year in particular. Why are we talking about this now? So for 2020, we're not too worried about economic downturn. In fact, we're expecting some pickup in growth. So you're absolutely right. This is not in itself an issue that's going to play out in 2020. However, we've been going through a whole generation of investors that have been in an investing environment where central banks were basically the only came in town. And the assumption that whenever there's going to be a significant downturn, central bank will be able to do something to support the economy and markets. And we think we're getting to a point where this should be starting to be questioned pretty fundamentally. Central banks are reaching some limits. And so as a result, even if there's no downturn imminent, that question will come to the fore in advance of the next downturn. And I think we've seen a glimpse of that in August of last year, 2019, where we've seen some intensification of trade tensions that were questioning the outlook. And we've seen, in our view, an outsized response of investors flying to safety. And that is a manifestation to our mind of a growing realization that it's not clear what kind of support will be next. So that's why we think this is an issue that is relevant now and is actually driving markets now. So your view is that there's not enough space for monetary policy to help us deal with the next economic downturn. Why do you believe that? And why are we at those sort of limits right now? Yeah, I mean, that view is not necessarily consensual or there's some debate around that. But the main reason why we think we're pretty much exhausted with central bank's support with the current toolkit is not necessarily like, is there an ability to ease over the next quarters? I mean, there's some more room. But in terms of dealing with like a recession or a real slowdown, we think that it's going to be very difficult for central banks to support and provide the stimulus needed. And the main reason is that everything that central banks do and all the tools that they have have to work through some interest rate. They have to lower some rates. You know, conventional policy is about lowering the short-term policy rates, Mm -hmm. but the uh, innovation of the crisis were about tools that allow to lower longer-term rates throughout the yield curve. And at the level that rates are right now, even at the long-term rates, there's not a lot of room to lower them much more than where they are right now. And if rates cannot go much lower, all of these tools are kind of uh, short-circuited in terms of their impact. 
How is that different in different regions? Because in some places, rates are already negative. So there's really no space then. So how do you see this playing out differently in different countries? Yeah, so in the U.S., we are at rates that are somewhat higher, positive territory. And so there is some more space in the U.S. And that's why, I mean, some people are arguing that there's a sense that there might be some room to respond to a recession. But even in the U.S., in our view, we've seen in August how quickly we can eat into that space. And we've seen rates like going very quickly down to historical lows even in the U.S. So in the U.S., there's more room, but even there, we're skeptical. And then if you go to Europe or Japan, then that clearly is even more obvious that it's going to be very difficult with negative rates. Mm -hmm. So let's take Japan as an example. An economic downturn happens. What's your recommendation? The response, in our view, no matter what, will have to involve some kind of more fiscal policy support. Mm -hmm. The immediate way to do that would be just to do straight conventional fiscal policy. So that would be for government to expand spending or cut taxes, for instance. So these are measures that we think would be more direct and effective. And there's certainly a lot of scope to do that in the current environment, given that rates are very low. It's very easy for government to finance their deficits. And in fact, it's possible to raise your deficit without increasing your debt as a fraction of your economic activity because rates are so low. We think that that's the next step. But, you know, there's a big question around this, which is if it's so obvious, why hasn't that right. happened? And throughout the recovery since the crisis, in our view, we've seen an over-reliance on monetary policy, even though a mix towards more fiscal would have been desirable, and it hasn't happened. So it makes us a bit skeptical to think that it's just going to happen naturally and we're going to see a fiscal response. And... That's why we've been exploring more explicit coordination between fiscal and monetary policy as a potential solution. And let's come back to that in a moment, but just a question before you say we haven't seen that much in terms of fiscal policy. You know, we did see tax cuts in the U.S. So, like, are there any lessons to be learned from there? Or you think that all the fiscal policy changes we've seen have been either in isolation from this sort of monetary policy or too minor to really have any meaningful conclusions for your thesis? There's been some fiscal support in the U.S. more than elsewhere, but even there, the mix, I think, has been over-relying on monetary policy. My statement was a global statement. Right. Uh, you know, overall, I think we've seen an over-reliance on central banks. I think central banks have been almost the only game in town to deal with the recovery after the crisis. That doesn't mean that there's been no role from fiscal policy. We've seen big package after the crisis in the U.S. And we've also seen tax cut more recently. Right. But the tax cut in the U.S. are also interesting in that they came very late in the cycle. This is the kind of ammunition that you would want to use to deal with a mm -hmm. slowdown not necessarily at the peak of an expansion, but those kinds of measures could be the idea for dealing with the next downturn. And elsewhere, we've seen basically easing from central bank at the same time that austerity was being implemented by government. Mm -hmm. uh, so we've seen like a situation where we're pushing on the accelerator on one hand and on the brake on the other for a big part of this recovery. As we think about the different actors in dealing with an economic downturn, you said central banks have been really the only game in town for a little while. The traditional role or the typical role of a central bank versus sort of like legislation or an executive branch that might have control over fiscal policy it may sound really obvious to an economic student, but actually today they're not necessarily as one might have learned in university. So how do you see those roles having evolved, the role of a central bank and the role of those fiscal policymakers, and what do you think makes sense for our next economic downturn? So it's very important. Uh, one thing that hasn't changed and I don't think should change is that there's a clear reason why central bank needs to have independence in their ability to provide liquidity and control the amount of liquidity that is in the system. That's very important. This is how you avoid, you know, high inflation mm -hmm. uh, regimes. And there's nothing of what we're envisioning that should change that. However, we're not in a world that is as simple as 
we thought we were until recently or a few years ago. And what I mean by that is that the tools that will be required are not splitting themselves easily between a central bank and a fiscal authority. I think we're going to need going forward to find ways that will not rely on the interest rate to go lower. So we've been labeling that going direct, finding ways to put money in the hands of people that can spend it more directly. And any tools that are going to do that will have an element of it that is, you know, monetary policy in flavor or central bank authority. And there's an element that is a transfer of resources in the hands of some people. And that's a fiscal measure. That's what fiscal authority should be deciding over. The problem is any of these going direct measure are blending these two into one tool. And that raises important questions about like, what's the role of central bank versus fiscal authority, mm-hmm. which are not like, you know, as simply falling into silos. And I think it's going to have to do with not about the tools being one of the central bank or the fiscal authority, but it's going to be more about what aspect of that tool should be overseen by the central bank and what aspect should be overseen by the fiscal authority and then jointly deploying that tool or measure. So in practice, what we've explored in our analysis or work is you could envision, you know, the, the quantum of liquidity that the going direct transfer would involve as being determined by the central bank. And you could envision the central bank deciding when is the right time to deploy that. But determining who is getting the transfer would be a decision made by the fiscal authority. So that's an example of one tool, but having kind of two keys and different elements being decided by different authorities. So that's a little bit of a snapshot of how you see this fiscal policy and monetary policy coordination working in practice, right? With this kind of like check and balance almost approach. Mm -hmm. What other arguments have you gotten in response to this view? What have been some of the counter arguments or concerns that have come up? Well, I mean, the concerns are, if you start from the world we thought we were in, where central banks were independent, they had their own tool and fiscal authority were a separate set of tool. It's easy to think of how to maintain that separate, right? In a world where we're saying, well, it's not as simple as that and there's a gray zone and you're going to have the two authorities that will need to work together, it raises questions about how do you maintain central bank independence? How do we ensure that the political side of things will not overtake central bank decision? Why would politicians be letting the central bank decide on the size of these measures by themselves? This is where the pushback is coming from. Correctly so, emphasizing that it's not a trivial thing to do in practice. But the point I would add to this is that While we completely agree that this is tricky and complex as a problem to solve, ignoring it is not an option in our view in any case, and moreover... Ignoring uh, what? Ignoring coordination. Coordination is a necessary future condition So saying saying that the argument that this raises complex governance issue, we agree with that, but it's not reason for not trying to solve this or figure out what that means. That's point number one. And point number two is we think that one way or the other, when faced with the next significant slowdown, the temptation to move in that direction of some form of coordination that blurs the distinction between monetary and fiscal policy will happen. And then the big risk for us is it can happen in like in an improvised fashion, which could be very dangerous, or it can happen in a more deliberate fashion if we have an open discussion about where the guardrails should be around that coordination. And those guardrails are really tactical and specific. So we can think of examples around the world today where we have some political leaders making comments about central banks, where certainly there may not be independence threatened in reality, but in terms of rhetoric, we're seeing new kinds of pressure, for example, on central bank policy from political leaders. How do you think we have that discussion? Who needs to take part in that conversation to make real these kinds of governance mechanisms? And what brings that about? 
that dialogue, I think, is already happening. So where are we going to be having those discussions and dialogue? I mean, it's happening during the context of even the U.S. election. There's a lot more, to my surprise, attention that is given to theories like what is known as modern monetary theory, which uh, some people have quipped that it's neither modern nor monetary nor a theory, <laughs> uh, is a view that you can actually finance spending by government by essentially printing money. So you can have the central bank that would be financing directly the spending of the government, and they can do that basically without real restrictions or limits. It's a pretty uh, non-standard or unusual, yeah. non-orthodox economic view that is pretty dangerous in itself, because if you believe that you can finance deficits by just simply printing money and there will be no consequence on inflation, it opens the door for uncontrolled fiscal spending. And I would not have conceived five years ago that there would be serious people discussing that, and yet now it's on CNBC. Mm -hmm. And to me, that speaks to the fact that we are seeing this drift. I mean, modern monetary theory is an example of a bad form of fiscal and monetary policy coordination. That's the kind of things that we think we should be avoiding, that we should put guardrails against. So some of it is happening through the political debate. But to my view, it's really about government and central banks having discussions on contingency plan in advance of those things happening. It's not clear to which extent this is happening necessarily in the public discussion, but there needs to be work by officials to think through these issues have some kind of contingency plan. You mentioned that we're hearing this in the election cycles, for example, or in political debates right now. We, of course, have an election coming up in the U.S. What's your view as to how that fiscal policy conversation is shaping up? Yeah, so, you know, what we've been discussing here is really about um, when we see the next downturn and right. slowdown. We're not too worried about recession in 2020 or even beyond that in the near term. So, Absent real sign of slowdown, we don't see the actual coordination discussion getting traction. Although the, everyone always likes to talk about when the next recession is coming, right? Especially absolutely. in an election cycle to sort of say, here's how I would deal with this, or you know, here's sort of my thinking on where the economy is headed. So there might be some broad discussion, yeah. but uh, I mean, like it won't be where the rubber hits the road, road, really. Yeah. But where there's a discussion, though, is around how much more fiscal expansion we will get without mm -hmm. like leaving the central bank aside. And that is, of course, one of the big questions around election in the U.S. There's questions around taxation that will be part of this. And I think more broadly, even more broadly than in the U.S., there's been somewhat of a big change over the last couple of years where we move from a global mantra around austerity, which was the starting point for most government around the world, from Canada, the U.S., and Europe, whereas there's now much less of that austerity narrative and while we don't expect much more support in 2020 from fiscal policy, the kind of narrative around it is changing, and that could lead to some upside surprise where fiscal policy plays a bigger role. So how do you see all of this impacting the investing landscape today? It impacts it, I think, in a pretty powerful way even now. Even though we we're talking about the next downturn and we don't see a downturn now, this is contributing to, I think, investor anxiety. The fact that there's no clear game plan on how we're going to be dealing with this next downturn, and we have doubts about the efficacy of the current toolkit, I think is contributing to this risk aversion or anxiety that investors demonstrate. I think the best example of that is in August of last year, we've seen a flare-up in trade tensions that was contributing to views of slowdown in the economy. And then there's been a very significant flight to safety from investors. We've seen flows to fixed income being very significant at that time. If we had a good sense of what the game plan would be in a recession, right the anxiety would not be as high. Right. And I think going forward, 
If we were to move where a world where we rely less on monetary policy and more on fiscal or some version of going direct, in that world, I would expect less pressure on rates to go down. And so that could be pretty meaningful in terms of asset allocation. Right now, it is pretty ingrained in the investors' minds and market participants that rates are low mm-hmm. forever. That could change in a world where we rely less on monetary policy going forward. If there is more of a shift to fiscal policy, though, do you then have an expansion of the tools that are used and sort of greater degrees to which they're used, and therefore you could have more uncertainty for investors than in our sort of previous regime where there's a little bit more of a straightforward approach to a recession, or or no? That's a good point. We have a clear framework around how central banks are operating. They have well-tested communication approach that are not always perfect, as we've experienced. But it's within a framework that investors are used to deal with that would be different. And fiscal policy is not as nimble as monetary policy. Calibrating it and fine-tuning is not an easy thing, and that could create more volatility or uncertainty. Mm -hmm. So at least in the transition, as we might be shifting towards more or less reliance on monetary policy, it could create a more difficult environment for investors to read through what's happening. Right, until norms sort of develop, for example. Well, this world you're suggesting sounds very interesting and potentially kind of different. Speaking of interesting, you just came from the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. What were the most interesting topics of conversation there? Well, sustainability is a big topic. And I would say more broadly, I think we've been spending the last five years or since the recovery framing the discussion around markets, around when is the time to the next recession. And the game has been about, is it going to be in 2020? And I think what's changing is it's not necessarily about whether we're going to get to a recession or not, but the fact that there are a series of structural limits in our mind that are now kind of playing into the near term and intersecting with short-term market movements. But those are really about the limits to central banks, which we've talked about. The second is around geopolitics, populism, and those dynamics that are reaching their own form of limits. And then the third one is around globalization, and that is also reaching some form of limits. And the trade tension between China and the U.S., how Mm -hmm. these two powers will be managing their strategic kind of competition is another form of limit that changes structurally how we think about the outlook. And then sustainability is kind of the fourth limit of structural limits. So these four are used to be seen as the long-term issues, but that are now affecting the investor decision. And I think Davos this year was less about recessions, what's going to be the macro outlook, and more about these structural phenomena now being relevant for investors and business communities. So I'm going to end with a rapid-fire round. Are you ready? Yeah, well, we'll see. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) who's your favorite economist? Yeah, well, that's one to get in trouble with. There's a lot of very insightful economists. You know, I was just listening to another podcast. Uh, <laughs> We're the only uh, almo- Almost as good you. as ours called Cautionary Tale. And there was this contrast about John Maynard Keynes and Irving Fisher. And I have to say that after listening to that, I knew John Maynard Keynes a lot, but the evolution of his career, being a public servant, very influential, being the Second World War and after the First World War, is trying to bring economics to investment community and trying to learn that he didn't have an edge and then figuring out how to go from there. And then being such an important figure of the last century, I think he has to be somebody that is very impressive mm-hmm. without necessarily being fully a Keynesian at heart. Mm-hmm. What's the most aesthetically interesting currency design in your view? It has to be the Canadian loonie. Uh, <laughs> it's not like your bias is a Canadian. That, that has yeah. to be, uh, of course. <laughs> what about the most overrated or underrated economic crisis? I think that the global financial crisis might be, it's not that it's over-underrated, but 
over time, we might forget how big a deal it was. I'm talking about 2008, 2009. Really? And the reason is things could have gone a lot worse than they have been. Mm -hmm. So I think we had at play there the dynamics that could have led to a Great Depression and the fact that we have avoided it. It's easy to forget what it could have been. So I think that's one element of it. And I think a lot of the dynamic we're facing right now around populism, some backlash globally around globalization and so on, I don't think would be as acute if we had not gone through the financial crisis. So, you know, now we go back and we say uh, it's about globalization and longer term trends. But I think absent that crisis, I don't think we would have these kind of existential discussion about politics that we're having right now. And looking ahead to 2020, an economic headline you think we might not yet be anticipating? Inflation is, in my view, the most underappreciated near-term risks. It's not like inflation is going to be picking up in an uncontrolled fashion, but the market is assuming so little inflation that it's ripe for a surprise, in my view, 2020. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Jean. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. In the U.S. and Canada, this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K., this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management U.K. Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, registered office 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N 2DL, telephone plus 44020, Seven seven four three three zero zero zero. Registered in England and Wales, number two zero two zero three nine four. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. BlackRock is a trading name of BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited, co-registration number two zero 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 one zero one four three N. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management North Asia Limited and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited, ABN 13-006-165-975-AFSL-230-523, BIMAL. The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. 
The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at www.blackrock.com mx. Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.